Christian author Gordon MacDonald is no angel on high, but he does tell a story that helps us understand why we may especially need Christmas this year. While speaking at a major conference years ago, MacDonald was approached following his speech by a very striking African woman. They struck up a conversation. She was from Nigeria and was a teaching doctor at one of America's great teaching hospitals. McDonald inquired as to the woman's name, and she gave an American name. And he says, no, no, what's your African name, he asked. And she smiled, and she said, well, that's a longer story. She then said the name. It was a multi-syllable, musical-sounding name. And then she went on to tell the story of the name. It seems that her parents had fallen in love many, many years before. And because they were from two different tribes that did not get along with each other, they had opposed, the parents had opposed the relationship. In fact, they had opposed the relationship so much that they forbade them from even seeing each other. The young woman and man were not prepared to turn their back on what felt like such an authentic love. And so they kept seeing each other and eventually married. This resulted in complete rejection by both of the families. They shunned this couple. They refused to speak to them. And then said the doctor talking to Gordon MacDonald, I, my parents became pregnant. They became pregnant with me. And, and, and when I was born and my grandparents had the chance to see me, the walls of hostility came down. Hence my name, she says. My parents gave me a name that means child that takes the anger away. Is that possible, do you think? Is it possible that the birth of a child, uh, of any kind of child, could have the power to take the anger away, to reduce the hostility, to dismantle the tensions, to open the possibility of reconciliation amongst people. Do you think that's possible? I wonder. There's a lot of anger out there these days. I thought it had reached its apex last year. I was wrong we had more capacity. It feels like we're still arguing about the person in the White House, about the legislation coming out of Congress, about the decisions coming from our courts. We're fighting over masks, we're fighting over borders, we're fighting over schools, we're seeing more looting in our streets and shooting in our streets. Four people were shot at the Oak Brook Shopping Center just last night. Hard to understand, hard to understand. So many rules and relationships in our society seem to be broken, not getting better. Many 
in our world seem to feel they are 100% right in their point of view and that everybody else on the other side is 100% wrong, mistrust and mania feels like the climate of our age. Our news sources have become little more than echo chambers ranting and raving so often at us and stirring us up and, and it affects us. It, it seeps into us. Even our families and our personal relationships are hardened by these things. We become bitter. We live in divided houses sometimes. And in that sense, maybe we're not so much unlike that African family that I described earlier. Or not so unlike that first Christmas family when its crisis first came and threatened to tear apart the relationship between Mary and Joseph. When I say these kinds of things, I, I don't really mean to universalize. I, I don't really mean to minimize the complexity of all of these different dynamics going on in our world today. There are certainly legitimate issues. There are important differences in all of these places. There are, there are truths that need to be hammered out and talked about and changes that need to happen. But as I watch all of this and live through it, as you are, I know, um, I wonder sometimes, how are we ever to do that hammering? How are we going to ever do that sorting if we can't even talk to each other? If the fever of our upset is so high that we can't even consider making the kind of sacrifices and compromises needed to fix what's broken. When life is this stubborn and prideful and fever pitch all the time, what's, what's the solution to that? It's almost like we need a very pure and very powerful child who becomes so much our focus that it, it takes the anger away. It's really hard to take in what happened on that first Noel. I think we have a certain tendency to sentimentalize it or to trivialize it. Uh, we work hard to really get our heads around it because it's so big. I mean, really, if we got inside of it, we would realize how big this event truly was. What God did at Christmas is so large and so counter to the way that that life as we know it and relationships as we know it and character as we experience it usually works, that everybody who was actually there struggled with it. From the shepherds in the field, from the mighty angel warriors in the sky, to the sophisticated wise men from the east, to the cynical Herod on his throne to the humble peasant Joseph watching as he saw the baby's head crowned with blood, all of them were completely stunned, amazed, in awe of what was happening. As we should be, I think. 
the brilliant legal scholar Paul of Tarsus was convinced that if we truly got what happened there, it would reorient our lives. It would radically transform our lives. It would reorient all of our interactions with other people. It would change our way of dealing with all of those wrong people with whom we're so angry. And so, Paul, who understands how much of a problem anger can be in a society, he writes this Christmas card of sorts to people in the city of Philippi. It was a prosperous city. And he was hoping that what he wrote would have a transforming effect on them. In your relationships with one another, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, you need to know the backstory here. There's a backstory, there's a reason why he's writing this letter. The people Paul is writing to in Philippi are fighting with each other a lot. We know this from the four verses that lead up to this particular counsel he gives, that there's a lot of pride and very little humility in that society. There's a spirit of ambition and vain conceit, I'm using Paul's words here, that had infected that community. Paul implies when he writes to the Philippians that tenderness and compassion were really hard to find anymore in that city's life. People were looking mainly to their own interests instead of to the needs of other people. They did not value those who were not like them. They were pretty sure they had the right mindset and that other people were stupid or evil. Philippi was a society divided in mind and spirit, Paul implies. Does that sound familiar? But if we remember Jesus, Paul says, if we can fix our minds, our hearts on Jesus, if we can take on the same mindset as Christ Jesus, then things can radically change. Things can get better. And so Paul goes on to talk about what truly happened at Christmas and at Easter because those events are connected. And I want to reflect on that with you in just a moment because it is something so stunning, so transforming, that I'm not sure at that first Christmas that even... Mary knew. It's hard to grasp, I think, as St. Paul tries to say to the Philippian church long ago, that this being we meet in the manger, this Jesus, was in very nature God. God which is to say he was someone that lived in a dimension of reality that we can only try to reach for in poetic terms. That he was a being of such timeless and absolute beauty, joy, 
and peace. That he was rapturously loved and worshipped constantly by dazzling angels so glorious in themselves that if we ran into the lowliest of just one of them, we'd fall flat on our face in abject awe, if not terror. Jesus was God. He was the source. He was the center of ultimate reality. To be him in that place from which he came, that dimension that was natural to him, was to be in an ecstasy so spectacular that for you or me to experience it, to feel it, for even a nanosecond, would blow every one of our neural circuits. It would just short-circuit us. To touch being God for an instant. Yet, writes Paul, this powerful word, yet, here's the thing that already blows my mind. He that being did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, says Paul. All of this glory and all of this comfort and all of this place and privilege that the Son of God enjoyed in heaven was his entirely by right. I mean, it belonged to him. No dispute. It would have been to his advantage to stay there to stay where he was forever and ever. It would have been totally understandable if he cared not a whit for conditions on some little dust moat floating through the cosmos that had been privileged with life and light and yet whose inhabitants were now taking for granted and destroying the very gift of life and could not get along with each other, could not find a way to build a bridge to one another over the most superficial things as if their opinion or their tribe was the center of the universe of reality. The Son of God could have stayed right where he was and have been fabulous forever. And yet, preserving his power and preserving his privilege and preserving his position was strangely not his disposition. Not his character, not his ultimate nature. It was not his priority. His mindset was, how can I lift others up? How can I bridge the gap? What can I do? How can I sacrifice to make things better for more? And so, Paul goes on to say, he, he made himself 
nothing by comparison. He, he took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The easiest way I can describe it, this is the Son of God, the infinite being who occupied and dominated heaven, squeezed himself down the chimney between eternity and time and emerged soot-soaked in a stable to share the life of an ordinary human family. And as he grew up, he experienced all of the stresses, all of the challenges that you and I know a lot of them worse than we know, without the conveniences we know. He displayed what it looked like to meet adversity with courage, with a remarkable grace. Jesus met human pain with compassion. He met human foolishness with stunning patience. He taught people that successful relationships were everything. And that being right had to do much more with being humble, generous, kind, and forgiving than it had to do with having other people kowtow to you. Jesus did good even to enemies. And being found in appearance as a man, Paul goes on to say, he stooped even further. He bent himself down even further to address our greatest need, our deepest problem. Our greatest issue as human beings is that we've been separated from God by sin. We cannot bridge that divide on the strength of our own goodness. We don't even know how deep the problem goes. And so Jesus voluntarily laid his life down on a cross to pay the debt that we couldn't cover. We didn't have the assets to cover, much less the understanding that it needed covering. And he humbled himself, says Paul, by becoming obedient to death, even death in the worst way possible. Death on a cross. And in his dying, Christ opened up the way for you and me to a restored relationship with God himself. He showed us the kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing love for imperfect people that is still so needed for this world to be fully redeemed. And so I think that if you truly understand Christmas, as I keep working to get it, <laughs> if you truly understand the cross, the crown of thorns that's connected to Christmas, you find that Jesus is actually the child who takes away the anger. You focus on him long enough, you will find that he takes away the anger toward other people and begins to fill you with a stunning love more like his. And it, if you truly understand the vast distance that he crossed to heal God's relationship with humanity, it starts to feel like a really little step, actually, to cross the political, social, racial, personal divides that separate 
people these days? If you truly get Christmas and the cross, you want to be reconciled with others. You want to do courageous things to bridge the divides that are so troubling our broken world. If you get Jesus, you will be inspired to truly be faithful to his calling. My friend John Ortberg tells the story of an individual that also crossed a big divide. His name was Father Damien. And his way of being faithful to the call of Christ, to the example of Christ, to the character of Jesus is a beautiful picture, I think, for all of us in our time. Uh, Damien moved to Kalawo, a village on the Hawaiian island of Molokai that had been quarantined for a very long time as a leper colony. Can you imagine that? A disease that would actually separate people from each other and require a quarantine. Well, for nearly 20 years, Damien represented God with skin on to the people in that colony. People can conceptualize God, of course, but it's hard to know him unless he comes to you with skin on, as he did in Jesus. So for 20 years, Damien spent time with these people. He learned their language. He bandaged up their wounds. He embraced their bodies, bodies that had never been touched by others. He shared Christ's love with hearts that most of the rest of the world wanted to leave alone and keep at a distance. Damien organized bands and choirs and schools on that island. He built homes for his leper neighbors He even crafted by hand 2,000 coffins so that when these people died, these forgotten, forsaken people could be buried with dignity. Slowly, Kalawo became a place to live rather than a place to die. Father Damien became a witness to God's hope for redemption and relationship for all of us. As Ortberg writes, Father Damien was not careful, not particularly careful about keeping his distance. He dipped his fingers in the poi bowl along with the patients. He shared his pipe with them. He did not always remember to wash his hands after bandaging the open sores. These weren't good ideas. He was not careful enough. But he got close. And for this, the people loved him. Then one day, Damien stood up and began his sermon with two words he'd never said before in this way. Father Damien said, we lepers, and people got it. Now he wasn't just there helping them, he was actually one of them. He wasn't just on their island, now he was in their skin, 
First he had chosen to live as they lived. Now he would die as they died. They were in it. In it absolutely together. Like this father and his child. When we think about the Christmas story, it can feel like it's mainly something that has to do with a fable or a history lesson. That Jesus came to do something, but that was long ago. But Jesus crossed the great divide to be with us, to be one of us, to share our skin, to be in it together with us forever. In fact, he would grow up and say later on to his disciples, whenever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I'm with you. I'm with you always to the end of this age. I count more than two or three disciples, which is to say, he is with us. He's still in it with us. <laughs> He's with us when our blood is boiling over what we're seeing on the television screens. He's He's there with us in the midst of the rubs and the stresses of our relationships in our homes and our workplaces. Jesus is really with us. The question, I suppose, is how his being here shapes us. How it affects the way we do our life together. It feels to me today, especially that this angry, anxious world that we live in needs more Father Damien's. People who, who are so focused on the wonder of who Jesus is and how far he went and how much forbearance he showed for sick people that they're faithful in doing likewise. That they do the same kinds of things that Jesus did. So my question is, what's one divide that you and I can boldly cross in days ahead? I can think right now of somebody I need to call. That's on my list for tomorrow, my Christmas list. I have a phone call to make to a relationship in which there's a rift. What's one broken relationship you might seek to heal? How can you be one of those rare, radiant people whose steady character helps lift people up in a world that's bent on tearing them down and pressing them down? As Paul says in his Christmas card to the Philippian people long ago, therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if it shows up anywhere that you've ever had any contact with this Jesus, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make His joy complete by being like-minded, by being like Him in mind. 
having the same love, being one in spirit, and of being of one mind. Not necessarily of one mind with the people around you, of one mind with Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Because if you and I do these things, if we really do some of these things, we will be living in the name and the power of the child king who came not to shout or stomp other people into submission, but to take the anger away.